welcome to the Silicon Slopes Conversations. Thank you all for being here. We're here with Derek Maxfield, founder and CEO of Unique, and Chris Yaden, executive director of Sapria. How are you guys? Great. Doing great. Thanks for the invite today. You are welcome. I'm excited because um, when we uh, get these events up and we put them on social media, it's always interesting who in my network is excited about the guests, right? And so with you guys, um, you're well known in different circles, right? And so um, my female uh, family members were really excited, like, and others they could care less about, right? So um, let's jump right in. We're going to cover two different kind of topics, two different organizations, but um, let's hear the, the founding story of, of Unique first. Yeah, so... Uh... I guess I got to take you back to 2010. I had been a software developer uh, for my whole career, and I had a software business, uh, NetSteps, that serviced a lot of the larger direct sales companies that you hear about. And um, I kind of was especially always had an affinity for my party plan clients. So those are like the ones that hold the home party in the home, you know, and. So as I was exiting that business, um, I was motivated by a cause, which I think that you know is kind of the second part of the story here that I think that we will talk about today. But I saw what I felt like was a huge opportunity for all the principles of the traditional home party to be taken into a digital social selling space. And so like a nerd with an idea, you know, I had to go try to build it. and. Uh, you know, I joke with my kids and my family that that year was kind of like the, like one of the happiest years of my life because I was retired and I had sold my business and we were secure financially and I was just coding. You know, I had gotten back into code, right, which, right, you tend to not be able to code anymore once you have a business that is software. Um, and so I was writing a platform, essentially, and it was a virtual party platform was kind of what I dubbed it, and uh, it was just, you know the home party principles, but taken to social media. Um, it was basically, you know, I, I could see kind of the principles of a home party and how they were starting to become deprecated in favor of a different form of socialization where you invite your friends to view your product demonstration on social media. And right, that 2012 timeline, that's when Facebook was really starting to kind of take over things. and. Part of the story that I probably don't have time for today is we were able to kind of tightly integrate right into Facebook. I mean, they had some APIs back then that they've since discontinued, <laughs> much to the dismay of my business in April of 2015, right, which is part of the story too. But um, you could tie directly into their platform. And so essentially what I did is I m made a platform that someone could start a party without even really thinking about what they were doing and share with their friends. And by having it be a Facebook group, the algorithms were extremely favorable. So we'd get a ton of eyeballs on those posts because they'd add their friends to the group. And that friend didn't even have to say, yes, I want to join the group, but they would see these posts. And so anyway, I built the platform and was done with that in 2011-ish, and I still didn't have any idea what products we were going to sell. <laughs> I just knew that it would be a virtual party company. So again, like a nerd, I guess, I 
I built some prototypes, or rather my sister, that's when my sister Melanie got involved. She is the co-founder of the company. And uh, she built a bunch of prototypes of products and we held a focus group. We had 125 women right here at Thanksgiving Point somewhere. And you know, we just basically tested those. And one of those prototypes was Moodstruck 3D fiber lashes. And uh, at that point, it was just being sourced from somebody else, right? So, I mean, later on, of course, we had our own formulations. But that fiber lash product combined with the platform was essentially the rise of Unique. I mean, uh, you know, this will sound like it's kind of braggadocious, but in 2014, the premium mascara market in the U.S. was 330 million. Okay, that's my, and we were 100 million of that. Um, because it, it, was a, it was a product that was socially demonstrable. You, right? They would put it on one eye and not on the other eye. And it was essentially the whole social proof selling. Right? It's like, hey, I went to high school with her. What's that? Oh, wow. You know, and, and it would catch their eye. It stops the scroll. And it sounds pretty simple, but that's what happened. Very cool. And today you guys have a lot more products. Yeah, so now we've expanded into all forms of cosmetics and skincare. Um, probably have about 500 SKUs now. And, uh, you know, we've had our ups and downs over the years and we've had to learn some things. I definitely learned how naive I was to supply chain and operations and, you know, all those things that when I was the nerd in the room and I was listening to my clients and just like, why don't you just order more product for heaven's sakes? You know, it's like, I learned, I learned over and over and over to eat my words that I was thinking, you know, back in the day and, and uh, yeah, but you know, it was fun. Very cool. And uh, now we'll start to interweave with, um, it started with kind of a, a bigger purpose in mind, right? And that's where Chris comes in, right? Yeah, so I'm going to turn it over to Chris to talk to you about what that is, but uh, the part of the story that I kind of left out that for me is, is really the most important part of the story is I was in my late 30s and I had learned that four of my five sisters had been sexually abused by very close family members and was really troubled by that. And as a data person, I kind of went to the data and I quickly saw that child sexual abuse is an epidemic. It's not just a, like an like occasional, uh, you know, one in four women will, right, have been or, you know, you know, have been sexually abused before they're 18. And uh, it just hit me at a time when I was self-reflective about what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And I immediately knew that that was the cause that I wanted to dedicate the company to. So I couldn't quite mustered the strength to try to start another business quite yet until that cause came along and it just felt perfect. It just felt like if I would consecrate the company, it felt like I'd be blessed for that and, and I think that's what happened. Yeah, so real quick and then we'll jump over to you, Chris. Um, you know, like McDonald's didn't start out with a Ronald McDonald house, right? Uh, and there's all sorts of examples of you get the business first and then you've got a little money and cash flow and you start to do good, but you, reverse that and the focus was on doing good first and then you're like, I better have a company to help do that, right? You want me to take that part of the story? Um, yeah, so Derek alluded to it a little bit in what he was saying, but 
it really became the motivation to dig in and start another company. Again, they were at a spot in their life where they were independently wealthy. He didn't need to start another company. But he had this cool idea, which he just explained. But the real motivation behind it was to address the issue of sexual abuse. And it's interesting that they had even decided on the cause before they had decided on the product. Back to his story about the product. And this isn't to say it's better, it's just different. Uh, any, any business that's successful that decides to give back deserves every, every piece of, of cred and applause. Um, but it is a little bit different story. It's truly a, socials, a social entrepreneurial story, uh, a story of entrepreneurial philanthropy. And more and more, especially our younger uh, entrepreneurs, are connecting their social entrepreneurship with their business entrepreneurship. It's most of them at least have something from the get-go. And that was certainly true uh, of, of, of Derek and Melanie and um, even, even more so Derek's wife, Shalane. She was the, the founder of Supriya, what was formerly known as the Unique Foundation. And maybe we'll get into it, but even that brand name change is an interesting story about that entrepreneurial philanthropy. Um, we were started as a public charity. We weren't started as a corporate foundation. Most people don't understand that. They, they often think that we're a corporate foundation. And a lot of corporations do corporate foundations, and they're great, and they're needed. But we're actually a public charity. They knew that in order to address the issue of sexual abuse because of its sheer... Uh, breadth and size uh, that it needed to be bigger than what the unique family alone could do. So they were very visionary on day one in incubating a charity through funding that would be able to outgrow them. And we've just started to hit that pivot, that inflection of growing out of the unique family, and that's a big part of what led to our brand change to to Supriya. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. And then for those that don't know, give a quick little primer and summary of what Supriya does, um, how you guys go about doing it, what changes you are impacting, and kind of the roadmap for the future. Yeah, so at Supriya, we work every day to uh, liberate both individuals and society, and both are important, from child sexual abuse and its lasting impacts. Uh, we do that through a variety of resources, uh, some uh, s very scalable, digital, and some in person. Uh, over the last seven years, our resources have reached a little over 14 million people worldwide, and uh, that includes both in-person services at our retreats that a lot of people know us for, as well as digital education designed for parents and caregivers to reduce the risk of sexual abuse, as well as to help adult women who are sexually abused as children learn how to heal. So there's, there's a multifaceted approach, uh, both in-person direct services and then indirect scalable digital services to address the issue of sexual abuse. And awareness, even being here today, is a big part of that. Um, I'll, I'll just talk a little bit about awareness because this month is Child Abuse Prevention Month and Sexual Assault Awareness Month. So I can't let that go without mentioning it briefly. And that is sexual abuse right now, sexual abuse prevention, 
is not on the list of most parents. Uh, they, they know it's there, but most parents do not proactively do things to reduce the risk of sexual abuse. Uh, they do other things to protect their kids, and it's not because they don't love their kids. Um, the best comparison I can give, uh, give to what's going on is car seats. I was born in 1974. My son was born in 1998, my first child. 1974 in Orem, I don't, I don't know, there's probably three car seats in Orem, would be my guess, right? Those that are close to my age will, will recognize that. It's not that parents didn't love us then. They just weren't aware of how important it was. By the time 1998, I was a parent, and all my peers, there wasn't a child that wasn't in a car seat. So what happened? What, in a single generation, talk about a shift. There are three things that happen, and these are the exact same things that have to happen with sexual abuse. There was a huge amount of awareness, there were excellent educational materials, and there was a ton of money thrown at the problem. We're starting to emerge a little bit in that cycle with sexual abuse. Awareness is growing. People are starting to get more comfortable talking about it. But parents aren't really digging into the education yet, and we're not throwing the amount of money at it that we need to yet to really move the needle. And Derek and Shalane and Unique decided to be a leader in that. Every cause needs a champion, needs someone to step out and say, I'll talk about it, I'll throw money at it, because this has to stop. And uh, they're, they're a great example of being champions of that. And every day we're getting more partners coming on board uh, that are willing to champion the cause and willing to champion it in their workplace, in their, their communities, at home, uh, you know, their networks. And we're going to see the same type of shift happen as, as those three things come to pass. That's great. And it's good to put it in context, right? Um, because everything, if you look back, was just insane. No car seats. Uh, anyways, lots of different ways our kids will grow up than the way we grew up, let alone previous generations. But uh, on the website, there's all, obviously all the talking points and numbers and, and metrics. Um, and you guys are 10 years into it, roughly, right? Um, for It's kind of interesting because, like, on the entrepreneurial side of Unique, um, if people are sexually abused... It impacts the business, right? They're not as productive, and they've got issues and baggage. Um, but then, on like the ch uh, the charity side, it's an entrepreneurial problem as well, right? Like solving uh, the marketing and distribution and, and awareness. Um, what overlaps as far as strategic vision for growing a, a company and having a successful mission like Sapria? Well, you know, that's an interesting question, and it, it kind of reminds me of some of the feelings that I had initially in the founding of Unique. I, I knew that was the cause that I wanted to start the company for, but I felt very uncomfortable with commercializing that. And so I actually intentionally didn't announce that ever until our convention in 2014, right? So I was... And I did it because, you know, again, I'm very uh, data-driven. <laughs> and I just, I simply had a trailing 12 revenue, or not revenue, profit number that I had in my head that once we hit that, then we were going to start, right, this, this cause. And so, and so we hit that, and, um, and we were at our convention in Dallas. And literally for the first time ever, I spoke of our intention to do this. And 
it, I can look back and now see, I should, have done, I should have talked about it from the beginning because simply by doing that, by talking about it on stage, it started to make it okay for other women to talk about what happened to them. Because above all, what this problem really is, is it's a taboo topic. And that's what makes, that's what makes it even more challenging for them to start a healing process. And sometimes, and, and if I could just kind of get on my soapbox for just a minute too, I think well-intended parents actually make it worse when a daughter or someone finally has courage to come and talk to them up, right, right, about their abuse. S sometimes we as parents don't give the right reaction, right? Instead we say, well, are you sure that's what happened? Or do we want to talk about this? Because that's going to cause problems in the family circles. And yeah, that's going to cause problems in the family circles, but it's going to cause more problems in her life if she has to suppress it and not talk about it. So anyway, I, I can see in hindsight that, that the first thing that I should have done is just waved that banner. And still, throughout all these years, I've constantly struggled with not wanting to promote the, the company, you know, at, like, or, and, and we've found the right balance, and now with the rebrand, I, I think it's even easier for us to just support the cause and let Sapria spread its wings, you know, whereas before our name was The Unique Foundation. And so, anyway, I don't know if I made like any coherent point there, but uh, um, it, it, you know, it, it's okay for those two to coexist and for them to be a symbiotic relationship. That's okay. But I didn't feel like it was kind of, you know, like in the beginning. Yeah, well, ultimately for Supri to be successful, and you guys have mentioned you're kind of at a point where you're outgrowing, um, but you needed Unique to be successful, right? Yeah. Um, chicken or egg, and you had to deal with both of those. So you mentioned data-driven. Um, let's talk about that first with you, Derek, on unique side, and then uh, Chris on Supriya side. Like, um, how to use data and metrics to influence your decisions and strategy? Oh boy. Um, well, that's been an evolving thing, just for me as a CEO and as a person. Um, but, uh, right, I mean, obviously, we're an emotional business, right? Any direct sales business is an emotional business, which is why you see these super dramatic rises and sometimes also a super dramatic tail off, right? Because it's a trust business. And yes, we sell beauty products and we sell skincare, but really it, we sell community and trust. And if the company, uh, you know, does things that in their eyes kind of violates that trust, then, you know, that's the cardinal sin of, and so, honestly, sometimes as I look back, and this goes to when we were partnered with a large public company, Cody, uh, C-O-T-Y, right, I thought it was in our best interest of taking on them, you know, as a majority shareholder, because of all the infrastructure and all the back end and, you know, all the manufacturing help. But what it did was it compromised my ability to make decisions purely from an emotional and what's best for our presenters. And I was the CEO the whole time, right? So there's no one else, right? I'm not pointing it back at Cody at all. They're a public company. They got to go in front of their shareholders every quarter, right? They got to talk about their, their like earnings. But that pressure isn't the best environment for, I think, any direct sales business. Like, that's just my opinion. Um, but uh, so I do use data, 
but I've learned to balance data with kind of more of the qualitative you know, uh, side of things as well. You know, from Supriya's standpoint, data is critical. We, we operate on what's called a theory of change. Any healthy nonprofit has a very well-defined theory of change, which says if we're going to change something in the world, what's our theory that's going to make that happen? And we track our inputs, we track our outputs, we track our actual outcomes and our impact. And each of those have data points behind them. And the further you go down that line towards impact, the harder it is to actually study effectively. But early on, we invested heavily in not only internal data tracking, but also uh, involving third parties. So our, our most mature service, which is our in-person retreat service, has now been studied by two third parties. One of those by uh, a, a university graduate, or a, a doctoral candidate at the University of Michigan, combined with a professor at Brigham Young University. And they tracked uh, our, a cohort in 2018 and 2020 over an 18, or a 12 month period and said, what happened? As a result of the services that they engaged with, what happened? And on average, a woman that went through that four-day in-person experience had a 37% reduction in post-traumatic stress symptoms and a 45% increase in overall well-being, so life satisfaction indicators. And these are drawn from top-notch mental health um, data, data uh, mechanisms that are designed to ascertain these changes. And those sound, you know, those are just numbers, but if you'll just pause for a minute and say, imagine for a minute having your traumatic experience from your childhood resurface every day and multiple times a day. Now imagine that reducing by 37%. And imagine your ability to deal with it when it happens increased by 45%. When the women say it changed my life, it changes their life. So in the nonprofit world, if, and, this, and we struggle as an industry with, with data. We love to do good. We're good-hearted. But there aren't a lot of us that actually dig into the data. But the, the problem with that is if you're not digging into the data in the nonprofit world, number one, you don't know if you're actually doing good. You don't know if you're having a 37% reduction if you don't measure it. And not only that, you may actually be doing harm. And it happens more often than you think that nonprofits actually harm more than they do good. They tell great stories, they, they get your emotions involved in those great stories, but at the end of the day, there's a lot of charities that actually do more harm or, or have a neutral impact than actually help. And because they're unwilling to study it, uh, they don't realize it, or if they are studying it and don't expose the poor results, then that's, that's even worse. So data drives what we do every day. Uh, it drives decisions every day. Um, but I would say we're, we're in a little bit of a unique spot in the nonprofit world in how mature our data sets are for how old we are. There, there aren't a lot of charities that they get to do that. And I'll, I'll just use that as an opportunity to call something out about the social entrepreneurship. The reason why a lot of charities can't do that, it's expensive and takes a lot of time. And 
new charities are struggling just to fund their programs. Because we had the incubation of Unique and they were willing to let us invest early and get our programs right and get them data driven, when people in our industry come and look at us, they're like, you guys have got to been, you're like a 30 to 50 year old nonprofit, right? And we're like, no, we're seven years old. And they're completely floored. And I think it's a good lesson learned for us in, in the business world when we invest in causes, how important it is to invest in the infrastructure of charities. Help them get their programs right. Help them get their research right. Um, it, you know, it's nice to say, yeah, we're funding this, you know, two goats to this family in, in Jordan. But it's just as important to say we're funding BI infrastructure. We're funding technology. We're funding the right capacity in the executive team. Those are critical pieces as well. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I'm not too bright, so I try to simplify things. But with the 40% reduction of PTSD, right, um, you could trace that back to obviously somebody being more happy, more productive. Theoretically, they could start and found a company that makes a huge impact in the world. But the bottom line is they'll just be happier and enjoy life more, right? Yeah, and it does have a direct impact on our workplace, and I'll, I think that's relevant for this group, so I'll, sh I'll just share a few stats. Uh, an individual that is sexually abused is 40% more likely to drop out of high school. So think about the education feeder into our businesses and what sexual abuse, how it impacts. An individual that's sexually abused, by age 30, 85% of them have a diagnosed mental health disorder. So think about mental health in the workplace and how it impacts our workplace. Uh, an individual that's sexually abused are three times more likely to attempt, not, not think about, no, not ideate on, but attempt suicide. Think about how suicide's impacting our society and business right now. And, and, and the root of it is, and, and this is what we have to understand, is most of our ills that we're fighting today, whether it be suicide, substance abuse, eating disorders, they're actually rooted in early childhood trauma. And so we're up here dealing with the repercussions, and we're not really dealing with the root issue. The root issue is early childhood trauma, with the big three being sexual abuse, physical abuse, and neglect. So if we're going to solve these problems that impact our workplaces every day, impact our employees, impact us, our families, our, our neighborhoods, we, we, we need to continue to help those that are here because they need help. But if that's all we do, it will be a never-ending cycle. So we've got to get down to the root of the issue, and that's what Unique committed to do when they decided to champion the issue of childhood sexual abuse. Yeah. And um, we'll, uh, by the way, we're going to open it up for uh, questions from the audience here in a, a few minutes, so don't be shy and get those ready. Um, back to uh, Unique. So direct sales model, um, tech-enabled, uh, beauty and cosmetics. Um, I imagine virtual parties were pretty convenient over the last two years, right? So how did that, the last two years, kind of impact Unique? Well, I wish I could say that, you know, that the last two years that our virtual party was a huge help to us. If I'm being honest, our uh, virtual party platform kind of became almost obsolete around 2017. And, and I recently bought the company back from Cody, 
Then I had a CEO in place, and I, I've now come back as the CEO just over the last uh, five or six months. And so we're actually in the process of completely renovating the digital side of our business to try to do it again. Um, Ten years is not very long in some business models, but in this, in, but in this one, it's it's ancient. <laughs> and uh, so, I see similar forces converging, and I won't have to bore you with all the details now. But the forces back then of social selling, combined with you know beauty products and just like the e-commerce, now there's the affiliate marketing trends and the influencer trends that I do feel like has a place inside of direct selling. So that's what we're doing now is we're trying to like do a new digital model that can be the platform to take us on our next wave of growth because still at our hearts, we're still a platform company, right? We have to be a beauty company. We have to you know, do all the things that we do with our operations and our supply chain and all that. But I'd like to think of ourselves as a tech company and as a platform company, but we really got away from that. So I'm having fun right now trying to I guess trying to get the next version of that platform. And that's where it seems like you're having the most fun is from a technical and strategic platform strategy. Yeah. Very cool. And uh, ultimately, why was Cody, it was a big number, 600 million, right? Like, what about your guys' business and business model was enticing to him at the time? Well, we were very profitable. <laughs> you know, if I, if I just say it how it is, right? They, they wanted to add our earnings, right? They were a $9 billion company, but uh, we became 30% uh, of their profit on the day that, that they, uh, you know, so they acquired 60% of us for the 600 million, and yet they were able to, you know, that's the magic number, I guess. I didn't know this, but if you get to the 60 threshold as a public company, they can actually put 100% of the earnings on their P&L. And so that's why it was done like that. And it's also why um, I was able to kind of negotiate a deal that came back to really benefit me. <laughs> you know, even though they were 60% owners, I could veto almost everything. And, um, and so that came to my favor when they decided they wanted to separate from us, that, you know, things weren't going quite. And, and they weren't going quite how I wanted either. You know, but again, I don't blame them, right? They were just a partner to us. But we, but we were not getting the synergies on the manufacturing side. And simply put, you know, they were a $9 billion company, and we were used to being an entrepreneurial, really nimble, right? We want to have an idea and launch it uh, six months later. And that's not so much their model, right? And so, you know, we both wanted to part ways. And their CEO actually made a statement on a public earnings call that he wanted to separate with Unique, which created a firestorm on my side because all, right, all of a sudden all my presenters and everybody's like, what is going on? But what he didn't realize is that I was his only buyer. You know, it, it, like I could block any transfer of their shares, and so that's what allowed me to get it back for the price that I did. And, um, and I think both parties are happy now, right? right? I mean, honestly, but... Um, I needed that experience to see what we really were and what we really aren't. Um, so I actually don't have any regrets, even though it wasn't very synergistic. It, um, it, it, it taught me that I shouldn't look external to, to uh, solve our problems, right? No one else is going to care as much as we do. And um, so, you know, I had to learn that. Yeah, that's always the case. And a uh, good little uh, nugget of wisdom, like structure the deals in a good 
pragmatic, strategic way in your favor, ideally. Um, all right. Uh, what is the uh, best selling product and what's your favorite? Oh, thank you. Uh, well, my favorite, uh, I, think, I, I think, you know, I, I'm kind of nostalgic and my favorite will always be the 3D fiber lashes. I mean, you know, that thing was awesome. And now we have 4D, by the way, which technically isn't accurate. There is no such thing as 4D, but anyway, the, you know, I'll leave that to it. <laughs> um, and our current bestseller actually recently launched, and it's a liquid collagen. So we got into the subscription world for the first time. And it became the next $100 million product for us in about six weeks. I mean, you know, those aren't the numbers that we've hit yet, but it's easily on that pace, um, which was surprising to me. Uh, we got a new CMO. He's actually in the room, Steve Carlisle right there. Do you see him? He, he brought that product to us, and uh, he had to talk my sister and I into launching it, actually, because we thought, no, no, we're a, a makeup and a skincare company, right? And he sold us on the idea that it was skincare from within, right? And uh, I'm glad I listened to him, or, you know, because that product is now off to the races, and um, it does cause issues, right? Because when you have this type of a sales force, now all their attention is on collagen, so now I got a warehouse full of other products that I don't know what to do with. But, uh, but I mean, that's a separate issue. Well, there's always going to be issues. Uh, good job. Um, you know, the CMO, probably a nice little Christmas bonus, I'd imagine. Um, okay, I don't know. Let's not set any expectations here. <laughs> that's, I said I imagine. I don't know. First, uh, he has to get it back in stock. There you go. The supply is the person with the worst job at Unique right now, the supply chain person. Uh, the probably the most frustrating job, yeah, yeah. And is there any sign that it's going to level out and become normalized again in your industry? The supply chain. I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I am, I am paying the most exorbitant air freight ever imaginable to try to get more of that collagen here. Like, I'm embarrassed to say it out loud right now. Uh, because it's just the supply chain and it affects so many things downstream nowadays, right? If there's one raw material that's somehow tied into the Croatia, you know what I mean? It's just, and it's real, right? It, you know, at first it was frustrating to me because everybody was blaming everything on COVID, right? <laughs> but to some degree, there are macro, like, economical factors that affect supply chain and then they affect our ability to get our products. And, um, and, and again, I've had to get a crash course in and I'm still learning. Yeah, there's a lot of that going on these days. And for those of us that aren't impacted like you guys, like we got two excuses in the can. Oh, so why are you late? Oh, COVID and supply chain. Yeah. <laughs> why do you suck? So, oh, COVID and supply chain. Um, okay, so uh, the Sapria rebrand is fairly new. And we talked a little bit about the reason for that. Um, dig in a little bit on that. And then, like, how's it going? Yeah, so I'll, I'll not not to correct, but well, I better correct. It. It's a new brand, Sapria. 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 Sorry. There we go. Um, let me give a little context behind it because I think built in, you're gonna. Derek will never tell you this, but I'll tell you this. Um, you're gonna get into his entrepreneurial philanthropy heart a little bit as I share this. So I mentioned earlier we were never a corporate foundation; we were a public charity. 
The reason why we chose the name Unique at the beginning was because they had such a broad audience, we knew we wanted to ride those coattails to build up our public awareness, and it worked. But we also knew before we even named it on day one, and I can even remember sitting in the, the meeting discussing it between Shalane, Derek, and myself, that we were gonna rebrand at some point because we were gonna have to go out of that unique bubble. So it was planned uh, before we even started and it was very calculated. <clears throat> the reason for it is the same today as it was then. We knew that at some point to address the issue of sexual abuse, it had to get bigger than unique. So why we were gonna ride their brand coattails to get us started, we knew to do the long-term goal, to meet our long-term goals, we had to, we had to um, grow up and leave the house. And that's, what I, that's the best analogy I can give you to describe it. We are 18 years old, they've incubated us, they've prepared us, they've given us what we needed to, to get the funding right, to get the programs right. And now, if, if we're gonna go far and wide and global, which is our target, we have to bring on other corporate partners and we're starting to get quite a few. I mean, some of you are gonna leave here saying, how can I help? Well, the Supriya brand change is enabling that. Other corporate partners don't want to tag onto the Unique Foundation. It, it you know, causes brand conflicts for them, but they'll tag on all day with Supriya and join Unique in partnership uh, in fighting sexual abuse, right? They're still our founding partner that will never go away. They still give to us uh, every month, every quarter, and they'll continue to. It's like joining another investor in something big. So uh, enabling other corporate partners to support us was a key part of the rebrand. Preparing for mail services was a key part of the, pre, uh, the, the program. Obviously, our, uh, our prevention services are to keep boys and girls safe, but our healing services were focused on adult women. So if we, we are going to go to men, which we are, uh, and we're funding for right now, uh, Unique is a feminine brand. It doesn't work for men. So we had to rebrand for that. And then lastly, to go after a global footprint, we needed a name that was very conducive to global languages. Uh, could be owned by us from an IP perspective and not compete with Unique's IP and cause confusion in the marketplace. So those are the big three reasons for the rebrand. And you, you, you might be sitting there thinking, well, doesn't that negatively impact Unique, right? And uh, maybe at first blush you might say, yeah, yeah, it does. Wouldn't they want to hold on to the Unique Foundation name? The, the thing is, is Derek and Shalane don't care. They want to solve the issue of sexual abuse. That's more important to them than uh, what economic impact it has on Unique. I think it will actually strengthen Unique. Um, and, you know, to Derek and Shalane's credit uh, and just getting into their heart a little bit, they announced at the beginning of this year that going forward, all profits from their unique business will go to charity. A bunch of that comes to us, uh, but I wish I could rattle off the other charities they're supporting right now. Um, they're not taking another penny out of unique. That's, that's that type of entrepreneurial heart that allowed us to do what we're doing and is allowing us to leave the home and go bigger and broader than, than we could have without their help. Yeah. Commendable. It's very cool. Um, as we sit here and have these conversations, it's apparent that you guys are squared away, right, on, on all accounts. But uh, you've mentioned that it's 
uh, a lot of work, a lot of ups and downs, um, but I think that the nuggets of, of knowledge on both the public charity and, and the company have been great. So um, we'll open it up to questions from the audience. We have a microphone up here in the front. <laughs> yeah, it's a question for both of you. First of all, I love your, uh, your mission and your presentation. Your um, the question I had was, has, do you have any data on the impact that the pandemic, the pandemic or COVID-19 and being people isolated at home, schools shutting down, and how that affected uh, child abuse? And then businesses now, a lot of them are still keeping people at home so they don't have to have, uh, a lot of people are preferring to work from home. Is that going to have an ongoing effect in that area? Uh, so I'll address both parts of that question. The first part is we know some things, we don't know everything. So there's pretty good data that domestic violence increase and, and child sexual abuse is a sub category of the broader domestic violence discussion. Uh, there are people in our industry that have extrapolated numbers and ex exaggerated what, what COVID impact had. What I will say clearly is from the early data, we believe it had a negative impact. But I would be hesitant to, when you see things on social media almost every day, that uh, they use it as a banner against COVID restrictions. Uh, they use, it, it's just not true. And they extrapolate all sorts of information to promote it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's just not true. So we, we know it increased it. We don't know by how much yet. Uh, and um, then the second part of your question, uh, sorry, remind me of the second part of your question. Oh, how, how will it, how it impact if people continue to work from home? Yeah. Um, about 30% of child sexual abuse is by an immediate family member. Right. So in that particular subset, yes, it, it could impact if it's mom or if it's dad that, that is doing the abuse. But it's not the whole of the problem. It's a, it's a piece of the problem. Right. And frankly, it's one of the hardest parts of the problem to, it's hard to, to intervene on and solve. There are other parts of sexual abuse that uh, we can solve much quicker and easier than that part of the problem. They all need the attention, but um, they're huge swaths of the problem we can take out before we deal with that part of the problem. Okay, thank you. Thanks for your question. Hi, this question is for Chris. So about 25 years ago, I worked for Intermountain Healthcare, uh, primary care clinical programs, and we had access to statewide database, right? And we did uh, diabetic education, blah, 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 blah. But statistically, we found that we could economically save a lot with diabetic education rather than diabetic management and all of these other things. I was pleased to hear um, that you were talking about you know, right now, yes, we have to address kind of what has happened, but focusing more on preventative steps in the, in the future. I'm interested to know, um, you know, how you think that would, what you think that would look like? Because um, when I think about sexual abuse, right, and we're talking about women because it happened to us, or women in general, um, but from a male, so how do you, <laughs> like, yeah. where's that education coming from? How are you implementing that into, like, your family education? And really, how do we address that preventative issue? Such an awesome question. 
uh, I could speak for an hour on this topic alone, but I'll I'll trim it up. So here here's what's critical to understand: in order to address a a, a societal issue like sexual abuse, there are multiple inputs that have to happen. You have to have good policy. You have to have uh, good education support. You have to have good health care support. Uh, you have to have good uh, school uh, after-school programs. All of those are components. But there's a linchpin. If it's missing, none of the other things will move the needle, and that linchpin is the primary caregiver, which is usually mom and or dad, right? And most... Uh, most people in our industry have focused on those peripherals, and I want them to keep doing that all day, every day, because we need it. We focus on mom and dad. And through micro-learning, mostly through digital means, we're educating mom and dad on the things they can do to reduce the likelihood that their child will be abused and the likelihood that their child will abuse another. So what people don't realize is most sexual abuse, a little over half, is actually an older child on a child. So think 14-year-old, which is the average age, um, uh, acting out against a 7, 8, 9-year-old. That's, that, that's, that's nearly half of sexual abuse. That 14-year-old problem is not the same problem as pedophilia. They are like light years away from what, one another. Mom and dad, through just a few things, simple education uh, principles, ongoing conversations, dialogue, expectations around boundaries, consent, body autonomy, I could go on and on. If mom and dad will just learn those key tools, they not only will reduce the likelihood that their child will be abused, but they'll reduce the likelihood that their child will be that 14-year-old. So when I say you can knock out a huge swath of child sexual abuse really relatively easy. It's just getting mom and dad to take this issue and putting it on their list. You know, as parents, we all have that list of here are the things we do to keep our kids safe. Sexual abuse is not on that list right now for most parents, just like car seats weren't for my parents. We need to have that generational shift that has that causes parents to put it on their list and we'll knock out a huge swath. Then we can start really digging into the more complex areas of child sexual abuse, which include, you know, uh, pedophilia, um, how do we keep people from entering trafficking, all those, all those type of things, which are, are much harder problems to solve. Um, so this question is for Derek. Um, I'm also starting a company, and we're a really small team of like five people, so it's pretty tiny. But, um, you know, we've been thinking, too, about having some kind of way to give back, and we're trying to structure that into our product. And um, I guess I wanted to know from your perspective, like, it sounds like the cause that you chose was very personal to you, but it sounds like it also closely aligns with your brand. And that's something that I'm struggling with because I have, like, a million things that I'd like to change about the world and trying to find one that, like, fits into what my company does and, like, the people that work there can also get excited about. Like, how did you balance those two? You know, that's a really insightful question. Um, we actually, you would think that it does align really well with our brand, and it does from, like, a demographic and simply, you know, but it, it, it has been a challenging cause, like if I'm being honest, because how do you casually talk about this particular topic while a customer is uh, checking out on your website? <laughs> you know, right? I mean, do you want to round up to charity, to this charity? And it's sort of like it's always been a challenge for our marketing team to know how to talk about it in a, 
in a quick and concise way. And again, I always had that reservation about really talking about the cause in the commercial setting. And so we struggled with it for a long time, to be honest. And, but the company was so successful that it didn't matter, that we could fund what Chris and team were doing um, because the company was so successful. And so that's all that kind of really mattered. Um, and so I guess back to your question, I would say you, and, and this, this sounds trite, but you got to follow your heart. What, what really matters to you is what you will be able to stand in front of your company and talk passionately about. And then it's not a matter of finding the right words that'll work in a certain setting. It's people follow passion and belief and trust. And, and, and so, you know, I guess that's my advice for you is don't, don't find the cause that fits the message. Choose your cause based on your heart. I appreciate you mentioned um, things that parents can do, and you kind of highlighted very briefly just, you know, first of all, it's just getting, having the conversation, it sounds like, is really kind of one of the main things, but is there any um, resources or something you would, you know, guide? I mean, I'm thinking about my kids right now. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is one of those things that wasn't on my radar that probably needs to be on my radar, but, but what, what can I do? You know, are there some resources I can, you know, get some of that micro-learning or just to ha start having some of those conversations in sort of a, you know, family gathering kind of way that isn't too crazy or I don't know do you know what I'm asking yeah yeah and you you feel like you're a plant in the audience but you're not, <laughs> <I'm> not. <laughs> that's an awesome question I love it <laughs> so um, here's here's the good news first of all all of our resources are free and they're all found on sapria.org and we have a litany of prevention resources for parents things you can do with your kids and things you can consume on your own that will help you learn how to prevent. The, 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 the good news that I want to reiterate, and I shared a little bit before, is it's not a heavy lift for parents. The biggest thing you have to get over, and we call it embrace the awkward, is starting. But once you get over that initial hump of starting to talk about topics that have to do with sex and sexuality and bodies and you know, consent and boundaries, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty smooth sailing from there. So back to the, the things, I, I used the car seat example, the things that shifted it, it was awareness, education, and money. The education's already in place, and it exists on our, our website and a, a ton of others in our industry that have excellent resources. The education part's not the problem. The awareness stuff, which is starting to pick up, is, is a big component because parents won't put it on their list until they realize that in the state of Utah, 21.2% uh, of our high school age girls report having been sexually assaulted in the last 12 months. Just, just consume that for just a second. Here in Utah, 21.2% of our high school age girls report having been sexually assaulted in the last 12 months alone. We've, when that awareness gets on parents' radar, it, we don't have to motivate them, but when, when they hear it and accept that there are hundreds approaching thousands of studies that confirm their incident rates, they're like, whoa, this could hit me. And then they start talking about it and they realize, whoa, it's hit a lot of people in my neighborhood, we just haven't been talking about it. It's hit a lot of people in my family, and I didn't realize. And then uh, the money part is 
in order to create societal change, you know, awareness campaigns are expensive. Creating great resources are expensive. And, and back to, you know, you kind of met, you, you said, you know, we're set. And in a sense, we are at our current size, but we are not going to have a global impact without other partners willing to throw money behind this. You know, back to this uh, lady's question about alignment. Clyde Companies, a construction company, was our premier sponsor at Gala last year. What, what, does, what does Geneva Rock have to do with sexual abuse? Well, everything because there are parents that work there. There are survivors that work there. And so that's what it takes is companies being willing to throw their name, their influence, their money behind it. And, you know, what I love about this environment is our inaugural partner that started it, that got us on solid footing, just like when you, you decide who you go to invest with, this is who you get to invest with. But Unique and the Maxfields cannot solve sexual abuse alone. Even with their expansive wealth, we need a lot of people to come to the table and throw money and awareness behind it because the education's already there. So back to the question, the education resources are there, go, go consume them. I'm glad you're getting the awareness today, but there are millions of parents that it's not even on the radar. And we gotta throw money and awareness to, to get it on their radar. Hi, um, my name is Eddie Yucha. I'm with Ensign College, former LDS Business College. It looks like your awareness campaign is going to target parents who are going to protect children. Have you th thought about educating children who are potential victims? And my second question would be, is it your plans to reach out to colleges, high schools, universities? Yeah, thank you for your question. So um, let me answer the first part. We are going to stay, we as an organization are going to stay focused on parents because we, we believe parents are the linchpin. And we believe that, and this is part of our theory of change, that it takes hundreds if not thousands of everyday normal natural conversations to keep kids safe from sexual abuse and to help kids uh, help prevent kids from abusing others so parents are our linchpin it doesn't mean it's not good to educate kids and there are organizations in our industry that focus on that through our school systems we want them to keep doing that work right it's kind of i, I painted that will earlier it's kind of it's part of that will but even, even that, educating kids directly without engaging the primary caregiver is not going to move the needle significantly. Where it really does help to go direct to the child is when their parent's the abuser and they don't have that parent to be the protector. So it's worth doing. We won't do it. There's others that do it. We want them to do it. And, and we're going to cheer them along. But solving the parent problem is so big that we've got to stay focused there. The second part of your question, engaging with colleges, um, I, I have engaged a lot already with BYU at Provo. We're starting to engage some with the U of U. So we are just starting to look at the, the higher ed industry as uh, key partners. We've done a little with UVU as well. So um, uh, whether that's providing education, guest lecturing, uh, you know, supporting their, their student fairs, uh, their women's centers, there's lots of different things like that, like that that we're doing to partner with universities, and we'll continue to do both locally and, and broader across the country. Yeah, right here, probably last question. 
My question is, um, for companies who are interested in social missions, what's your opinion on uh, B Corp statuses? Is it helpful or uh, benefit? I actually don't know what a B Corp is. I do. Okay. So, <laughs> um, it, it, it's, it's one of those right tool, right job uh, answers, right? There's, it's not, the B Corp's not a good tool or a bad tool. It depends how you want to do your work. Um, so it's a great tool if it's the fit for how you want to do your work. But I don't think a B Corp is better or worse than a for-profit group that wants to give back, right? Or um, a charity that wants to seek donations or a family foundation that wants to give uh, a generational wealth. So it's, it's, it's hard to comment and say it's good or bad or the right or wrong approach. It, it depends so much on, number one, your business model, your products and services, but also your intent as a founder. Um, so there are a lot of great experts in B Corp. They're growing which is cool to see. And it really, at the heart of it, is that social entrepreneurship, which is really cool to see. But I don't know that I have a strong opinion on, on good, bad, right, or wrong vehicle, because I think it's dependent on so many other variables. So sorry to not give you a, like an awesome answer, but it's just the, the, it's one of those right tool, right job answers. You have to see if it's the tool you need to accomplish your goals. Very cool. Well, I knew this was going to be a fun conversation, and uh, we're excited to distribute it to anyone that wants to listen, and uh, I've enjoyed it very much. So thank you, Derek. Thank you, Chris. You guys are doing amazing things, and we appreciate your time. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you.